Hi, everybody, and thank you for watching. My name is Ken Branner, and I directed the film that you're about to see, and I'm joined by distinguished screenwriter Michael Green, who wrote the screenplay for the film you're about to see. Do you feel, Michael, like I do when you watch this logo, that there's something about it that takes you right back to childhood? I love it. I love that it's still 20th, even though they're in the 21st. It's yeah. just, let's go to a century we know went okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, I enjoyed this logo from our uh, fearless leader, the great master, uh, Sir Ridley Scott. I enjoy it because it looks like the sketches he just doodles while you're talking to him, if he likes what you're talking about. Yeah. He, uh, he's secretly a world-class uh, artist. He sure is. If he, he wasn't directing films seen by the world, he'd have uh, paintings in the Louvre. And he has, and he says he's restless in, in that way, isn't yes. he? He's, he's always creating. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, now, so. we come to... Um, Jerusalem, and I'm going to speak for a second about um, the world of 65mm. We chose to shoot this movie on film in this large format, which uh, I believe, like others, um, immerses you uh, in the story viscerally with these colors and, and takes you to the kind of uh, fancy and foreign and exotic location that Ma uh, Agatha Christie so favored and indeed uh, in many cases had visited. But Michael, why did you decide to uh, start the yeah. screenplay in Jerusalem? <laughs> a couple of reasons. One of the many uh, fun things about Orient Express as one of her books and my favorite of her books is that it's one of her travel books. It's one of the ones mm -hmm. that uses uh, exotic locations as part of the escape velocity to engage you in the story. Sure. So the book starts in Aleppo, I believe. But Correct, in Syria, we, we, yeah. We also knew that uh, we had a chance to reintroduce the character. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the last time this was adapted for the big screen, uh, Hercule Poirot was still on everyone's lips. Americans knew him and read him, and mm -hmm. we didn't want to make that assumption. We wanted to give him an introduction, like yeah. this one right here. Exactly. And, uh, uh, I remember uh, reading it up on it. The, the the idea of the two eggs is not in the book. It's uh, it's actually not even referenced in uh, the books uh, at all. It was in a um, Hercule Poirot biography she had written for like the Sunday Gazette, yeah. where she had had a number of his little quirks and. Uh, specificities but the, uh, his little originalities he yes. called, of which the most famous one is uh, about to appear there it is and the facial furniture that is Hercule Poirot's <laughs> moustache uh, also needed. It's so big that I knew that we wanted to have two shots, one including this profile. It was yes. critical to me to see the double swirl of the double handlebar. This moustache was designed by a distinguished uh, makeup and hair uh, designer, Carol Hemming and the product of many, many months' uh, work to justify what, as you know from the books, people would mention as the the single <laughs> most, <laughs> most uh, impactful um, yes. uh, impression. Uh, Captain Hastings, his his partner in many other stories of the 30-odd stories, novels, 33 novels, I think 50 short stories, mm. would say that the first impression um, that, that most people had of, of Poirot that he was a joke because of this moustache and that we, I think, risked that <laughs> possibility here. But we knew that um, Hercule Poirot is more than the sum of other people's reactions, including the weirdness here, which was a great stroke of yours, Michael, to suggest early on that it's not so much with this new Poirot that he, he is prissy and precious about getting his hands or indeed feet dirty. It's something else which is... Um, Balance. It's, it's beyond fastidiousness that there's just an order missing in the world that he's going to bring back. I'm, I'm not done talking about the mustache. I think we've talked about it for a little while. <laughs> one, one of my favorite things about when I first saw the first images you sent me about what the mustache might look like is 
Agatha Christie almost always describes uh, Hercule Poirot's uh, facial uh, appendages in the plural as mustaches. Mm -hmm. And I went, there it is. That is a multiple. That is a multiplicity of mustache. And, and you definitely uh, had yeah. to feel that, that, that somehow it was, it was setting itself up as a part of him. When I started with Carol to mm -hmm. wear versions of it, it made you lean forward. It made you feel that the mustache itself was... Uh, like he, like the prow of the ship that is Poirot, or yeah. the front of the classic car, and uh, it for me it really uh, um, anchored it down into his uh, background as a as a, a policeman and indeed as a man of the military, something that early drafts of the script had some more focus on, but that it represented a more robust and sort of physically able or capable Poirot, one who at least in my view wasn't so much that and we talked about this right at the beginning, mm -hmm. did we want him to be more of an action man? Not I think um, for its own sake but because this sort of bloodhound Poirot would once on the scent of the crime dismiss anything in his way including mm -hmm. potentially things he had to run over or jump or kick or do something to but we've we've just here uh, uh, established the moment which was when I first read the screenplay the most delicious diversion when I like many other people watching this film for the first time thought why has he just stuck his cane <laughs> what is that into, about? This in this case, little man. a small hole in the massive, epic, uh, wailing wall that, that starts this sort of amphitheater moment? And it was really a lean-in moment for me, uh, and, and little did I know it was going to pay off uh, as it would. Where did that come from? Uh, it's, it was just trying to get a little microcosm of how his mind works. He sets traps. He's always seeing many, many steps ahead. And uh, you want to represent the brain that is ahead of your own to tell the audience that whenever you're watching him, you have to guess, uh, is he just as silly as he'd like us to think he is? Or does he have something up his sleeve? And when it's Hercule Poirot, it's almost always something's up the sleeve. Yeah, with this this sort of mm -hmm. divert, he sets the, the play up, the show. In this yeah. case, it's a very public performance which for those interested in such things our jerusalem here was in fact filmed in malta mm -hmm. uh the uh, uh great island kingdom of uh, of historical note um and we were able to create that great piece of the wailing wall by indeed building and placing uh panels on an existing wall in a very very um pleasing uh sort of natural amphitheater inside uh uh, uh, Malta itself. It gave us the heat of the east in the light, and it allowed us a kind of scale with the uh, uh, the numbers of crowd, etc. And also the to... openness in the sunlight. Yeah, we, exactly. We, we knew was, we would be craving was, later. So this is this is all the uh, the color and light and heat that we're depriving the audience of later. But we don't notice. deprive them of that very nice no, <laughs> trip up there, which uh, um, was so, when that happened. I really thought, gosh, uh, I'm I'm in. It's I one mean, of my favorite stunts I've ever uh, seen. It's both brutal and amusing at the same time. It also it's, it's exactly so economic, which is is something of of uh, a, a keynote for this Poirot. But then here, mm -hmm. I, I felt that this was uh, the the yin and yang established across a little of what we might have expected from the flourish and flamboyance of what went before and the sort of 
what you know some might call the show-off of Poirot, and then, as it were, on his own and a little away from the crowds, this more melancholic individual who expresses this sense that that, uh, if you like to call it the brilliance that mm -hmm. he just exhibited, comes at a price, and the price there's is a weight. loneliness. Yeah. And a, there's uh, a loneliness, there's a weight, and that, that weight keeps being added to by every case he encounters. And mm. uh, it, though he has seen quite a bit, there's a lot more to see, and it, and it hurts him. I mean, there's, he declares here that he needs a rest. And it's not, uh, it's not because he isn't intellectually curious. I think it's a moral rest he wants. Yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's a search for rest that travels through all of the books, even though this idea that there's right, there's wrong, there's nothing in between gives yes. him some sort of absolute position he thinks, but it's what sets up what's going to be the challenge to that position through the rest of the story. And here, again, for people who are interested, <laughs> the... Uh, this is shot in real Malta on a real balcony with real sea yes. behind and real boats, and yet it looks <laughs> like a comp. It looks like a comp. It's, a, it's the most beautiful <laughs> comp. It's the reality yeah. comp. Um, uh, I, I, you know what? It's one of those things I you can usually tell when there's a yeah. comp. This just has a level of grandeur to it. Yeah, it's a bit uh, just yeah. amused me that I, I, I don't <laughs> literally mean that, but it just it's so it's so perfectly blue and saturated that uh, it, it had that quality. I just love that you end that scene uh, with a slight bit of insult to him and that even even it is most melancholic, it's just he can't help himself. Yeah, if the tie's not straight, then it's just gonna... it pains him. Yeah. It pains him. But I at the same time, when he meets someone wonderful, he's able to recognize that and be relieved. Yeah, like and I, I like, this is the beginning, of course, of our challenge, which we had to meet, of how do we, how do we introduce our audience to all of these characters. In this case, mm. uh, Colonel Arbuthnot and Mary Debenham, played by, in the first case, Leslie Odom Jr., and here the beautiful uh, Daisy Ridley, and, uh, and, and, and establish them well enough, knowing that there'll be a gallery of such uh, folk, mm. and allow a connection with Poirot that is personal, and also give us, as we do in this scene, a chance to see that uh, people both expect of Poirot this, this bloodhound, tenacious, uh, detective deductive ability that which he rather amusingly um, <laughs> points out in this case could be perhaps ex exhibited by many people who chose to look in the direction of I just happened to see your ticket and <laughs> funnily enough yes uh, once again though being in real Malta and real sea mm -hmm. on a real boat here it was a fantastic way to feel the sort of breath of a story which as you mentioned is going to become mm -hmm. very very claustrophobic it's a departure from the um from the, 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 the novel, although we're, we're about to arrive where the novel takes us. But there's a sort of elemental quality to what I'd call the, the, what we aspire to, the timeless 65 mil uh, landscapes. Yes. It's, it's big sea, it's big sky, it's deserts, it's, it's, it's graphic colors like that big piece of sky in the horizontal, big piece of blue, big piece of sculptural landscape, and then these uh, two statuesque figures in mm -hmm. the middle. It's quite, it, for, for, for the intensity and color of it, it's quite graphic. It it's lays a beautiful composition. I also sparing. love that it's the, in hearing this conversation, he's leaving this Old Testament land where right and wrong is incredibly clear and quite literally taking a voyage into murkier seas yeah. where he lands on the other side is the beginning of the story that's going to challenge his very clear sense of morality stated uh, on the other side of the shore. And one thing we do here is is also as that as that very thing happens, uh, Patrick Doyle's musical score mm. shows itself as as an absolute essential um, accompaniment to the evocation of the, the the larger world, the golden age of travel that now takes us into an Istanbul where here in the kitchen of uh, a favorite restaurant. Mm. 
Um, we see, which I loved what you did in this regard with Poirot, a man who, if, if previously associated with a superiority or a snobbishness, here um, is a man who will say early on in a film that comes from the hills of Beverly and Hollywood, <laughs> uh, he says, Mohammed, my friend, um, he was also... You're an artist, yeah. He, he, he's, he, that you're an artist, that... that, that, that it's, Poirot embracing, as it were, what you might call the backstage world, humble breads, the work of the artisan, about which he has no condescension or patronizing He's not impressed quality. with uh, people in their class and uh, th their very expensive attempts to impress him. What he is impressed with is perfection achieved, and it doesn't matter where he finds it, whether it's art, whether it's bread. Uh, anyone who, you know, a pianist hitting the perfect chord is what's mm -hmm. going to move him uh, way more than any riches. And one of the things you, you did here, and I enjoyed playing, was having a, a Poirot who one might describe, it's partly the moustache, the military background, but where, relative to what we were just discussing, and here in the hurly-burly of backstage in the kitchen amid the smells and the grease and the hiss of the cooking and everything, is a more worldly fella who's ready to... Um, uh, not exactly turn a blind eye, but have an indulgent gaze on a on a much younger book than we have in in the book. It's played mm -hmm. here by Tom Bateman, played uh, hilariously by Tom Bateman. Yeah, beautifully and with great charm and lightness, yes. even as the the man from the ministry approaches. But I like Poirot again in. in um, as great detective minds must be, a sort of a contact with a seedier or sleazier side of the world. He knows humanity. Yeah, it was a change you brought to it, I think. Uh, going into this, it was that he asked for the best restaurant because he wanted to be impressed. And you'd switched it very cleverly, I think, to he's going back to a favorite place because he knows when you're here, if you miss a moment of Muhammad's breads, then you haven't really been yeah, to Istanbul. Yeah, yeah. Also here, I think Agatha Christie does it and you seized on it here. Um, that uh, Poirot, uh, for only a few moments, can taste the luxury or the indulgence mm. of a holiday. Once again, in the form of Gerard Horan, excellent actors, Mr. Ainsworth, uh, the call from London comes, and that other crime, the Kastner case, draws him back. So now he must get back to London, and that 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 fe that feeling of the of the that which he cannot resist, but which is also a sort of ache, a kind mm. of constant restless demand on, on this gift of his uh, sends him for uh, a, a, a journey on the Orient Express where once again you're hoping, well, maybe those couple of days will be a parenthesis of calm, but not yeah. if we meet all of these no, people. Book pitches it as going to be this wonderful vacation on rails, and then we meet person after person who's going to make that very, very difficult. In this scene, it's hard to decide whether to talk about the gorgeous uh, set that was built for this uh, or the remarkable people entering into it. It was so much fun to work out how to introduce uh, Manuel Garcia Rulfo, who, who, who plays uh, your invented character of Benjamina Marquez, or Penelope Cruz, who, again, we play with a, a character yes, stolen stole from another book, from, uh, uh, Pilar Estrovados. Yeah, one of the best names in any Christie book. Yeah, and if, in, in fact, in her originating, uh, originating position, which is in Poirot's Christmas, I think, yes. she has yet another name. Yes, it's actually a false, the false name comes true. Which we, I, I enjoyed the, the idea of the uh, Christie aficionados maybe possibly <laughs> heading that way. If you are one of those and you're listening and watching, yeah, I hope you did enjoy it. We then, of course, meet the rest of our characters, including here, Sergei Polunin, who frightens off Johnny Depp as Ratchet. And um, in him, we have the Count Andreni as a man of volatile and restless temperament, but the great dancer. And, of course, Sergei, you may know, is... 
um, a brilliant, brilliant young dancer, uh, married in this case to Lucy Boynton, who enters as a classic femme fatale, <laughs> turns into a close-up with a veil. The veil uh, is one of my favorite pieces in the entire yeah, film. She, and she, she they, they all look terrific. But of course, along the way, we've also met Derek Jacobi yes. as Masterman and Josh Gad. Here we needed to bring people, of course, into contact with the star of the movie, one might say, or certainly the star of the title. And here with Manuel Kenzari, who plays uh, Pierre-Michel, we see the front of the train. And then this is one continuous Steadicam shot. There's Josh Gad. There's Johnny <laughs> Depp behind him. So now we're still, we're on a tracking vehicle, but we're on a Steadicam on the tracking vehicle. Here's Penelope Cruz coming past. And as we pan over, of course, there is uh, Poirot and uh, Tom Bateman as Book. All of these extras have been rehearsed from 8 o'clock in the morning as we've practiced this shot over and over. And... Uh, uh, they all have to deal with the moving track tracking vehicle on which the uh, camera sits and not look at the camera, not bump into the scenery. Quite a lot of plot being uh, conveyed mm -hmm. as we talk. We will meet at the ticket office here uh, once again, uh, Daisy Ridley. Uh, the con camera continues all of this dramatizing the idea of is he going to have a berth on the, on the train because the mysterious Mr. Um, uh, Smith, is it? Harris. The, uh, Mr. Harris. Mr. Harris from the original the false movie. false name, yes, yes. Um, it may or may not be here. Uh, the half hour has passed. Uh, that means that they can, in fact, let Poirot on. And so still, without cutting, here we are, uh, bringing Poirot, who belies once again concern about uh, order in terms of numbers. Being in an, uh, an odd-numbered compartment is not good for him. The shot's still going. It's still going. And here <laughs> comes, yes, you're right, it's, uh, it's uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in an outrageously pink coat. <laughs> so now we're traveling back down the, the train, which is peopled by all the magicians who provide the champagne and the white linen and the pianist who plays uh, something of Pat Doyle's soon-to-recur theme. And all the way, beautifully done in a, in a very, as they all are, terrifically pitched performance by Michelle. The husband hunter, who is Mrs. Uh, Hubbard, passes Derek Jacobi's spitting on the Iron Masterman and Penelope Cruz now on the trains, uh, 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 cautious Pilar, uh, and then through the preparations for uh, dinner and into uh, our flambéing <laughs> kitchen, which was all happening. And there's Leslie Odom, who was on the platform before. Yeah. And now we meet once again. There's Lucy Boynton and... Uh, now there's uh, Manuel, and then he's been there all this time, folks. Yes, it is. It is Johnny Depp, who's been on the train all that <laughs> no. time. He was there for the full three minutes while we yep. ran up and down the station. And, and is he there? Yes, he is. Show busy's Josh Gad. And we <laughs> the cut is coming. <laughs> we, every time I watch this shot, every, no matter how many times you screen it, it's like watching live figure skating where I'm terrified that someone's going to fall. But oh every my time, goodness me! You well, stick the landing. Those those skaters fell, including oh, me, many gorgeous. times. Uh, it was Michael, a beautiful, beautifully constructed shot. It's it's a nice arc. And of course, it's all in the it's all in the writing to get us to. Oh this God! Sort of, he just said it's all in the writing when you just saw a four <laughs> well, minute take but, with the entire film but, represented but in it. But Amazing. It is the, the musical movement that just says, uh, and now we must give another yeah. kind of um, phase to this uh, this overture, if you like, this mm -hmm. travel overture, which is bringing all these people together. I bet you can't recognize who that is. <laughs> yes, it's Dame Judi Dench and Olivia really Colman. I love this shot because it has all that depth. This is our built uh, um, Istanbul station at Long Cross Studios in Surrey. And of course, that's a man who, who beautifully takes every moment that he's on screen, Willem Dafoe. Um, and uh, and allows us to uh, join up again with uh, 
Judy Dench. And this, this interweaving of people's arrival onto the train was such a joy to try and work out. It's a bit of maths uh, as well as a sort of intuitive feel of, of somehow for the audience trying to pour a bit of champagne. We're trying, mm -hmm. at this point, you're, you're lifting the mood, the mood of expectation. You're still excited to be there. Yeah, sure. It's still, I can't wait for this train to go off and exactly. we can be with them. And as you'll remember, you yeah. remember one of the first things you and I did was do a scout on the Orient Express. Yes. And <laughs> describe, if you will, how did you oh, feel before uh, that it was, train it was one of the silliest things I've ever gotten to do, silly and purely joyful way, where it's getting an email from uh, from you and saying, we're thinking of scouting the actual train, would you like to go? As if there's any possible answer other than, <laughs> you know, uh, let me get my dining jacket. <laughs> and uh, we checked it out, and first it was just the giddiness of understanding how lovely a trip like that can be, that there was once a time where this was considered travel that you might dress up for and enjoy. Um and then it became very, very practical, where we started actually going, what do these scenes feel like? Mm -hmm. When can it be claustrophobic? When can we work against claustrophobia? When uh, did even the angles of uh, some of our suppositions make sense? Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, of course, this is also uh, Johnny here in, 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 with the face of a movie star. I love this look. It's a great, great look and starts the departure process, uh, which once again, Patrick Doyle's score starts to soar with because we often talked about, and there it is, Istanbul, that emergence mm. from the, the gateway to the east. Where it's always uh, sunrise or sunset. Yeah, exactly. And where Perfect. you feel the event of the train leaving mm. or departing involves the whole city. And you, you start this feeling of the miles under your feet. All that glamour, all of those people, all of that swirl will now from that massive place start to head into these more remote places. Still magnificent, but the, but the world is starting gone. to cool. We go the, from the extreme heat and bet. there's the ice coming. Yeah. And then, and the suddenly, suddenly, away from all of that is the life of the train, and the life of the train in, in this case includes the arrival of uh, Derek Jacobi's um, brilliant masterman, uh, who meets uh, Johnny Depp, who is in receipt of the first of a series of threatening letters. You've mentioned Patrick Doyle, who you've worked with quite a bit before. I think he, we owe him such a debt in this. The soaring music also he repurposes some of the same themes mm -hmm. for elation, but also for tension. And I'm always uh, thrilled to see how he's able to just bend familiar notes in a slightly different way to create a completely different mm. mood. One of the things I enjoy about this interaction between Johnny Depp and Michelle Pfeiffer is the glamour and the connectivity between the story, the train, two pretty amazing looking people who meet in a barbed exchange that feels, as I always felt about this picture, that it belongs in a movie movie. <laughs> um, big widescreen entertainment. With, Larger than life. With movie stars looking fantastic, playing characters with some bite and edge, each sort of giving as good as they get and uh, feeling as though the, um, as it were, the conflict that clearly will be at the center of a picture like this for all its spectacle, etc., is there and also that you feel that they will play it and take those moments of, um, of characterful tension. And it's the beginning of saying, you know, all will not be well on this train. And I, what I, there are moments here played by Michelle Pfeiffer, both in when she first sees uh, Ratchet and when he steps off, where the hints of things to come, the reveals to come, are buried in such subtle performances that I marvel every time that she's able to play a character who's playing a character who is playing a character. Yeah, and in this case, playing a character who is mm -hmm. on a train carriage, which is being rocked by hydraulic gimbals <laughs> uh, underneath, making yes. it, as you'll remember, one of the things that really struck us on the real train, any train, is that it's very hard to walk... Um, 
uh, as it shunts and buckles and, and you're so constantly knocking around and exactly and so this was a, a feat of engineering by our uh, brilliant production designer Jim Clay who um, found a way to recreate the entire Orient Express um, and deliver it um, uh, to in this case uh, New Zealand, in other cases Switzerland and France, as you know Malta at the beginning gave us our Jerusalem but also Long Cross Studios in Surrey where we had a mile of track outside, mm -hmm. where we had LED screens outside that played some of the moving footage that we got from plate photography in New Zealand and allowed this delicious silliness finally two regular <laughs> eggs and, and the moustache guard. guard which Alexandra Byrne, our oh, costume designer was, was, was creating as, as one of her many, many triumphs here. Uh, as many uh, incredible movie stars during this film, Alex Byrne is someone who I was absolutely giddy to meet. I had been a fan of her work for so long, and ev every piece of wardrobe here is something I want to wear. I want to dress as Daisy Ridley <laughs> for Halloween every year. Well, we really shouldn't talk about that, Michael, because that's it's so disturbing to me. But, but um, at least Willem Dafoe's coat. Yeah, oh, I love it. Alexander Byrne, of course, is a, an Oscar winner who I've worked with over the past 30 years, both in the theater and, and on films. And her trademark is the kind of detail that gives you that scarf that Penelope Cruz is wearing. And Penelope, I think, one of the world's greatest beauties here eschews that, that glamour for the religious seal of Pilar Estravadas and, and brings that severity that we're going to find um, unsettling because it has quite the drive behind it, as they all do already, I think. Mm -hmm. You've established, and Agatha Christie uh, gave us the, the understanding of how to do it, that already each one of these people seems to have a secret, whether it's Willem Dafoe getting on yes. the plane, patting something in his pocket. Could that you're, that just, be a... well, you're wondering uh, what are these people, are they, are they what they present themselves as? Uh, and then, of course, we always have Mr. Book, who uh, seems to enjoy life more than anyone ever has. Yeah. One of the things you do with his character, however, is to see this sort of uh, louche in some ways, but also innocent in some ways, youthful, life-loving, life-living individual start a journey which is going to perhaps rob him of some of that innocence. Yes, and, I think uh, we described him in the script as uh, he would flirt with a drain pipe. Yeah, <laughs> and he certainly brought that. Uh, he, I may have stolen one of those uh, menus as a personal memento. I can't I, I believe you're saying that. Uh, I'm going to report you to the, <laughs> to to the Fox, Fox authorities. To the Fox That's menu it. menu stealing, please. Um, as 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 many may know, I've worked with Judy Dench for uh, over thirty years now, and she she was that's just bragging. She was den mother in this. Well, I'd, let's say let's say I've worked for her and certainly been bullied by her for the last thirty years. She was the first person to be cast in this film, and her double act with Olivia Colman was a wonder to behold. They um, they were trouble. two astonishing yeah. actors. I, I remember that was one of the first you, you told me the first person we'd had on. He said, "I think Judy wants to do it," and I just said, "Thought if this is where we're starting, yeah, I'm working a, with Kenneth Branagh and Judy Dench in this film." It was a good moment. It you know wonderful. what I like about that interchange with Book, and one of the things that's a feature of the script is the ability to go from those moments of mystery to a personal moment for Poirot like that, where we start to hint at what is that past? Is there a broken heart? Could he indeed fall prey to any of the attractions of somebody as beautiful as Miss Pfeiffer there on this train? Does that render him vulnerable or, or weak? But instead, we don't get time to think about it because an apparently racist <laughs> Willem Dafoe... People making the, themselves conspicuous. Yes, yes yeah, exactly. So um, he's either... It, well, is he giving uh, a performance of Professor Gerhard Hardman or, uh, or is there something more 
sinister and insidious to this um, pr provocative stance over the presence of uh, Leslie Odom's Colonel Arbuthnot. Which, of course, would be entirely believable in the time. Yeah. There were many, uh, this kind of shot beliefs. where we're able to play with Daisy and Willem and then track back down the, mm -hmm. the, the corridor and, and, and find Johnny at the end was one of the pleasures of the, the event that was putting all of those people in the, in the, in the same place at it's the same a, time. The, the celebration of the sealed room. Yeah, and, 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 of all, and on, on a sort of, sort of separate level of just seeing, um, well, you might say that many movie stars, but just terrific actors. Um, but we also knew that it would, it would, it would find itself, uh, as Agatha Christie does with many of her stories, in uh, involving those one-on-one -on -one scenes here. It's a, it's a core and pivotal scene in the movie, isn't it? This? Yes, it's, a, it's also one that does take uh, several pages from Agatha Christie herself. It is, um, the book is masterfully structured, uh, and this is one that really kicks off uh, the story. It tells you that there's a specific danger. It points out whose back we should be watching. It, of course, starts with an edition of your own that I adore, which is laughing giddily at Dickens, which she references him reading all the time, but yes. never with quite the zeal you bring to it, which makes me laugh every single time. We, uh, for, for, for those uh, interested in such things, uh, that uh, cake was very carefully chosen, knowing <laughs> the that fragilité. the fragilité, uh, <laughs> because it was very likely that myself and Mr. Depp, who I would say is uh, absolutely unafraid uh, of the world most actors live in awe of, which is eating on screen. <laughs> um, because this, this, this particular scene, for instance, was shot over a day and a half. There were many, many versions of it in many different shot sizes. And lots and lots of, I say this uh, shamefacedly in front of the writer, <laughs> but there was lots of uh, improvisation. Oh, obviously. Uh, which I am thrilled to take credit for. But, it is but very Most of them were your words, Michael, but they were sort of arranged in a slightly yes, different yes. way. I mean, you, you know, you, uh, it was... Uh, oh, I, I'm thrilled with this. I, this is one of the best notes I've ever gotten on a script, which was uh, when you were going to sit down with him over cake, you said, can we specify the type of cake? And I got to spend a good couple hours on the internet rabbit hole deciding what were popular cakes at the time that would both look good and be appealing to eat. Yeah. And came across Regilete, and there it is. And, and, and uh, so uh, very and, happy for these. Uh, and one that had that endurance factor for people who are going to be sitting opposite eating. For, for I just knew he, we needed you to have favorite things he would want to scoop. It needed yeah. to be a layered cake of sorts. But it is, uh, it is remarkably improvised. Uh, Johnny brings some incredibly funny, tiny moments that establish a character that we are unnerved by. We know there is something deeply unsettling and dislikable about the man, but at the same time, I enjoy disliking him. I, I, I watched him in, in awe, I must say. For me, there was a masterclass to be had as an actor and director watching actors of tremendous technical accomplishment and you know clear charisma and fine talent. In this case, really embracing a character who many would find so unlikable and perhaps many actors would not wish to play for, mm -hmm. for the, the, the kind of... Um, uh, the, the way in which they may feel the audience is put off. And uh, that's not just a question of being vain. It's just uh, he's a dark character. We find out quite how dark late, later on in the movie. But to have somebody of Johnny's stature come in and so generously uh, play this darker character and see him in, enjoying playing it and, and across the day and a half of improvisation to really feel his freedom in front of a camera was... Uh, uh, quite intoxicating to watch and to play with. There's nothing you could do um, 
in improvising that would throw him. And what we talked about before, which was with your excellent dialogue, that, that nevertheless underneath it and this world of what you might call the formal and rather elegant um, meta world that is Agatha Christie, mm -hmm. we wanted underneath it the performances to have a, an, an improvisatory feeling, a spontaneity that just cut across anything that felt like heritage filmmaking. It depended on performance, and he does a Absolutely. A great there job there are whole speeches here where he actually is letter perfect for the script, and yet it is still entirely improvised in his delivery, finding cadences, tones, and personal moments where the words become so superfluous uh, because of what he does to it. It's really remarkable to see. And he also leaves that impression in the movie, which is so necessary for a for a, a, a picture that revolves around what this character did and who he is, that is uh, is weighty and grave, and it, it spreads its resonance uh, out in into the into the larger picture, the formidable character that is this one, whether we regard him as Weasley or Shifty, he has that gun, he has that assumption of power he has that danger and so he he he's starting this is the process this is the scene where the sort of intensity of the glamorous spectacle is starting to ratchet a little more tightly and uh, i don't mean to use the word ratchet then but but it is, <laughs> it is but it is literally with him i also love something in your performance there that uh even though he's being offered a very handsome job that poirot uh senses immorality and has to excuse himself from it yeah, he, that he won't willingly walk into the company of something that he considers dark or gray or sinister. He's it's, on, it's another he picks assertion. It's yeah. another assertion, isn't it, of, of a sort of uh, this sort of moral absolutism that is going to be challenged as the movie goes on, but allows the audience to feel, oh no, this is a man who knows who he is. Who he is contains ex eccentricities and and weirdnesses, you might say. But mm -hmm. he 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 certainly knows who he is relative to people like Ratchet and his offer. Now here's we, uh, a sorry, moment in the, Oh no, it's, uh, it's structurally, here's an interesting moment in the film where things are happening that are very, very personal and take time for character when it will be revealed later on that this is actually a crux of plot time. What is happening off screen here is actually going to be the thing that will be divined throughout the film. One of the things that we wanted to do with this element of the story, which is the way in which the train is delayed in the, uh, in the original novel by uh, um, uh, uh, a, a snow f uh, flurry mm -hmm. um, that uh, slows the train down and stops it. Um, we decided, I suppose I decided really, <laughs> and, and it forced on you, the idea that uh, the approach to what would be that, um, uh, that stopping of the train could and should perhaps be more dangerous, the train higher in the mountains, and the actual way in which it was stopped, and the place in which it was stopped. Yes, that was more a remarkable and, invention on your and, part. Because uh, from from uh, even before your involvement, you know, talking with Fox about what this film would be, uh, everyone involved wanted to make sure that we honored as much as possible the the wonderful fundamentals of the book, but we, we could add more tension to everything. And so a snow flurry could become an avalanche, uh, that a plane could become high up in the in the Alps. Uh, and then, of course, you bring in this beautiful image of the viaduct, which we'll find ourselves on very, very shortly. Yeah. Again, it's um, things seem like nuisance, but are really deeply uh, centered on plot. Sure. And, and I think this is, a, I feel when I watch the movie, I hope those of you watching at home, in in seeing the movie without us wittering on uh, <laughs> is the um, is the sense that everything probably means something. Yes. Uh, every color, every um, 
That's something we take from Christie. That uh, yeah. there, whenever there's a fact presented in the first third of the book, you are meant to either notice it and try to remember it, or you're meant to be distracted by it. They're all very tactical on her part. And talking of distraction, the, the sort of scale of this carnage as the, as the train is, is derailed mm -hmm. was indeed also meant to distract and, uh, and have the audience uh, um, uh, perhaps not take in quite as they might exactly what's going on as they are invited in this big screen format and with this terrific sound job by our supervising sound editor James Mather and his team uh, to be sort of viscerally involved with uh, that great shocking um, stop which is then punctuated by the um, fallen Poirot popping his head out and and bringing us back into the world of humor which is this dynamic inside Christie mm -hmm. itself isn't it she's she's she is ready and wittily ready to go to something amusing after something dramatic we tried to maintain that she seemed endlessly amused by Poirot as a character she was misquoted at some point as saying that she didn't like him as a character and uh, was didn't understand why he was a favorite but uh, upon further investigation I was very pleased to find out that that was not true that she actually was always very very proud of the man she she said she admired his compassion mm -hmm. his ability to understand human frailty and his kindness I personally enjoyed uh, playing that kindness and I also enjoyed as a director here in this shot, for those interested, this is real cast in real uh, railway carriage, but the first part of that, I think, very moody morning after shot was um, digitally created by uh, uh, George Murphy, our visual effects supervisor, and his very fine team. Um, but the ability to sew together the digital world that we created, the physical mountain that we did indeed build. Yes, it should. Uh, it, those, he's saying digital, but what needs to be noted is that that uh, viaduct with the train atop it was very, very real. There was a two, three-story structure where the center mass of that image you saw was actual, and the first something 40, 50 feet of mountain were there. They were digitally extended on top and on bottom. Uh, even the bottom with the ice was was partly there. So this is a, a tremendous victory for practical filmmaking, which one does not get to enjoy uh, nearly as often as one wants. And, and even the, the, the railway station where we saw the beginnings of the rescue mm -hmm. of the train was also something we built. The broad and the, station. And the rail alongside it was something we built. This was another one of those moments where we were able to put all the passengers together in one carriage, and it was very exciting and fun. This was a group that really got on. The rapport and chemical connection between all of these people was, was, was significant and unusual in my experience, and they worked together very well as a team, handing everybody their moment, like this beautiful moment, in my view, for Penelope Cruz that waits a kind of expectation of a certain kind. Uh, um, it's a moment to talk about our cinematographer, Harris. Our, our yeah. close-ups are as beautiful as our wide shots, and it's something... I admire every time I see it. I mean, just these choices here, this bold telling of a massive piece of uh, the narrative in this dollhouse shot, uh, which you've described as an homage to a favorite film. Indeed, Dial M for Murder was where I first uh, put to Harris Zambalukos, who uh, I've worked with now for the last decade, one of a, a handful of uh, cinematographers I've had great experiences with over my life in film. Um, in Dialem for Murder, a third of the way through, when the Ray Milland character who is planning to murder his wife um, sets up the idea of how the murder will occur to the man he's blackmailing in order to do it, Hitchcock switches to this sort of bird's eye view, and the result is to make uh, what was a, a, a human story shot in the horizontal and in the proscenium style, suddenly as this is, rather forensic, rather um, inhuman, rather mathematical. And in this case, I suppose what I wanted 
to experiment with, which Christy does in her way, and you certainly do, Michael, in the screenplay in various ways, is the playfulness um, of not revealing that body. Many people have said to me in the movies when they've watched that they literally want to push this camera and <laughs> this frame that you're seeing up so that they see what Leslie Odom sees. And I we saw people actually lean forward as if they could look over it. Well, because <laughs> I guess the they film. want to know, and yeah. with a new telling of the story, well, is it indeed the Johnny Depp character? How was he killed? What does it look like? Is it horrific or is it or is it different and, but and you're also, putting uh, the audience in the mind of poirot which is there's very limited information at this point yeah and we're going to parse it out very carefully and we're also putting the audience in the in the in the in the same place as those characters we just left we'll return mm -hmm. to in a minute they'll understand that well book was called the doctor was called something's happening but they don't know uh we know eventually we'll know that little do we know that they know that they don't know etc <laughs> but staying here um and then also enjoying just the fun of you know that this this kind of angle is also the sort of angle of puzzles as well isn't it it's it's the mm. putting together of a board game of possibilities um and i liked that and then to switch here harrison balukos uh, uh, one of the favorite things and uh, most brilliant kind of uses of um his cinematography is in reflective shots. So here we have the reflected mountains. We have that preoccupied Poirot that uh, I found a real delight to play. And then you see here this rather naked fear from Tom Bateman's book uh, that underpins all this. This is this is trying to to bring the man who needs a holiday, a rest, a sort of spiritual longing back into the. The the, the 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 arena of blood and, uh, and Poirot death is and uh, resistant because I think he knows at this point that if he does put himself into this, that it's going to be hard, that it's going to hurt, that there's something ugly here. He has a sense for that, and it's not resistant because he just wants to sit and read, but because they're exposing your soul to the ugliness and other people's souls hurts him. But the key things that motivate him are the idea that someone like Marquez or Abathnot yes. might be summarily charged merely because of the color of their skin or their race. And a key line here, I think, from Poirot is, Every day we meet people the world could do better without, yet we do not kill them. We must be better than the beasts. We better must be better than the beasts. Yes. I loved saying that, and I loved a movie that was talking about, well, is that important to be better than the beasts, to be civilized, to resist turning into an atavistic individual, to return to primitivism? You'd think that it's impossible. Look where we're sitting. It's an elegant, beautiful world yes. of, of, of cocktails. The and, highest of culture against and, the most base. And in instinct. here and amongst that group of elegant people is someone who viciously stabbed another individual 12 times and we don't yet know why but we know it's going to be for a very personal very ugly uh very venal reason and in and in the the brilliant simplicity which is the touch of a great artist agatha christie puts that situation now in a world where they are physically trapped so now that question who did this appalling thing is in the context of these people being unable to easily leave a train carriage which is uh, trapped in a place that is cold, high, inaccessible and subject to the rigorous scrutiny of this fella. And here's one of my favorite uh, employments of an actual Agatha Christie quote, <laughs> probably the greatest detective in the world. The the uh, and a, and a, and taking a, it from a, her and using it for I think the biggest laugh in the entire film. And a, a huge, uh, a huge pleasure to uh, to play. And one of the things that I think is so impressive in, in what you did, Michael, was in having set up that account of Poirot 
starting the movie with a denouement, basically, in, in Jerusalem, we now know that that kind of, whatever you'd call it, formidable, deductive uh, ability um, is at work with these people who did not expect to be stuck on a train with the Belgian uh, no. rival to Whoever Sherlock Holmes. Whoever did dare kill someone didn't know what they were in for. Yeah. The, the other thing I just have to say, lifted directly from the book, sometimes your best thing to do is copy verbatim, verbatim is the... Um, the killer's with us on the train now. It's yeah. just take that line taken, and I loved watching you find different ways of playing that, but it's just, yeah, that was that is the entire film in one line. Yes, the killer's with us on the train. And that train and the roof of that train, train, train is something I did definitively walk on. Yes, you I, did. I was there, and it was high. It was <laughs> And high. off the other end was quite a drop. It was, it was. So, um, of course, in theory, because you're supposed to be leading from the front, I did a lot of deep breathing and tried to be very <laughs> nonchalant. But it's fine. I've got a wire on. It's all fine. But it's funny once you oh, get that high. That's a proper terrifying stunt. Yeah, and yeah. it's a well, bit terrifying to uh, most people. But to to this uh, to this 56 year old uh, actor, it was, a, it was a little bit. I of watched a, you do it, and I got vertigo for you. Well, you're, it was a, it was it was definitely though part of us wanting to suggest that Poirot is fearless when mm -hmm. in pursuit of uh, the the quarry. Um, and also that just from a from from this dynamic. So here we are. We choose to stay. Have uh, Josh Gad's brilliant performance here as McQueen trapped in the corridor, a corridor that's slightly wider than the one on the real Orange Express to accommodate our heavier. But if there's anyone who's a larger. true rat in a maze, it's him in this scene. Yeah, yeah. And and but to go to go to this kind of um, you know claustrophobic uh, in intensity, sweaty kind of investigative thing from. The great roof sweep. Mm -hmm. the The idea was always explore every bit outside, inside this train, and then, and then you know, be able to uh, close in on the claustrophobic element, but not make it a permanent feature. Occasionally, allow people to feel, oh, there's a little bit of air here, but not here, where where again, I would say performance style is is uh, exemplified by the 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 kind of fumbling naturalism that I think. Um, uh, Josh does very beautifully here because it makes you very nervous for who McQueen is and what he might have done. But uh, I know for an incredibly funny man who f everything he says when you talk to him makes you laugh. Uh, the only time I've ever <laughs> I, I see him here and I'm terrified in his presence and I'm terrified for him. Uh, just a complete transformation. It could be that the application of a mustache to his face changes everything <laughs> about him. <laughs> I think. It's it's also a scene where you know we talked about uh, big close-ups and a 65 mil. These are massive forensic close-ups. They become a monumental monumental sort of sculptural complement to the big landscape shots. And I think in a movie where you're trying to work out whether people are telling a lie or not, to be able to have the detail that 65 mil brings and the subtlety of performance here is a is a very particular. Um, uh, flavor. Well, what I get is it's how Poirot sees them. There's almost a hyper reality to it that we're getting uh, a microscopic view on a face and catching every every lie, if uh, there are any. Yeah, it, it it was it was it was a very interesting scene um, to play, and I found across the course of the story, perhaps obviously enough that the mood of the day and the quality of the sort of atmosphere w was you know born out of the subject matter and as we started to get you know we're we're miles away now from sweeping landscape shots mm -hmm. and we're now it's we're starting we're to get tinier physically and harder. dirtier and smaller and and sweatier and and uh, uh it's a nice very nice piece that when you ha have him say we need to 
We need to talk to the victim. Coming back here and, and just hopefully offering the audience up a chance to say, well, who do you think? Who do you reckon? Yeah, do you think it's him? Yeah. Do we have it already? Yeah, exactly. They're yeah. all... Uh, and uh, Especially when uh, McQueen's exit line is horrifically racist, which is kind of a weaponizing of something that was dropped very casually in the novel where people mm. really make sweeping assumptions about other characters based on where in Europe they happen to be from and what mm. they assume that means about them. This was a day, as was the, um, the one in which we shot the discovery of the body, in which... A certain worried colleagues said to me, um, so Ken, wh when are we going to do the coverage on this? <laughs> uh, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, like um, the clues. Should we, should we, uh, should we do the, the, uh, the pipe cleaner? Should we go in on the wound? Should we go close on the coffee cup? There's the watch and everything. I said, uh, well, those would be the very brilliantly, you know, done CSI <laughs> shots that are, you know, legendary now in terms of having a camera travel through yeah. the fiber of a piece of carpet, etc. But here I wanted to offer up in this big screen format all the things. They're still there in the picture, so the watch is still there, the wounds are still there, Johnny Depp's face is still there, although upside down like a hung man, mm -hmm. like the fallen man. I like Bleeding that. out, yeah. Um, but he, it's Poirot in a nutshell. He's not a forensics investigator there are those who rely on that as he's about to say in an upcoming scene that he doesn't he doesn't enjoy the science of it that it's about the psychology of it and so we're seeing the world entirely at once uh in the god's eye view quite literally of every fact you need to see is right there plain it's just a question of whether your mind can interpret it fully and to understand what it means so it's and I, all the yeah, psychology I, it's, of Poirot. It's, it's, and i also think that it's good that the, the audience get the view Poirot gets don't they mm -hmm. physically we mounted the camera on a crane that was on a massive uh, uh, platform as high as the sides of the recreated train and um, it was a technically very ambitious shot to do for all its apparent simplicity and across the whole of the range of the technical and creative crafts on this picture we had Amazing um, focus pullers, uh, amazing camera operators, terrific, terrific team uh, of people who technically rose to the challenge of all of these things. So, And I love that you found this moment to bring it outside. Uh, it was something we talked about a lot in the script. It was something that you just discovered on the day and then moved things around. Of This was going to take place in one of the rooms we were going to see far too much. And then you had this idea of let's take it outside and use one of the lamps as opposed to... Uh, the, the hat box, the hat it's the box. Hat box trick yeah. in, inside. Taken um, in a much more interesting direction for me. Well, it yeah. certainly gets it outside, doesn't it? And, it? and it also introduces you to an environment that where we may find uh, mm -hmm. our, our list of suspects suddenly congregating. Plus you get the great visual of the train and the mountainside behind the sort of the beached whale that is yes. the train. But of course, now we're getting to uh, the key of things, uh, which is Poirot's understanding that um, uh, with the, the assumption of what these letters on that charred note mean. And telling people there is a notorious case that happened that this is suddenly going to revolve around, that there is a, a famous case. And so it and is, and here we discover through the language we've been using when it comes to flashbacks, black and white, to say in broad terms for the logic of uh, storytelling for the visuals and the audience first-time experience, that black and white means it happened in the past and it allows us to use a sort of graphic style that comes from a, a sort of noirish treatment of such stories. The interior of the Armstrong house, um, for instance, maybe very obviously, but still 
rapturously and enjoyably for me evoking uh, the sort of Greg Tolan style of uh, Citizen Kane. That's where mm -hmm. our inspiration was anyway. And certainly in the in the bigger scenes. Things where, shot uh, from underground looking up. Yeah. Yes, yeah, big wide, <laughs> close on wide lenses with, with, with looming foreground figures. But also as we get back into this environment, uh, that 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 feeling of the interiors from Kane, and also in a movie movie, uh, the 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 existence of film being important. Oh, God, I just had a flashback of trying to construct a letter that had missing letters that meant something on both sides of it, uh, so that you could have just enough to figure it out and then fill it out later. I held out as best as I could. How much did you enjoy that sort of practical business of uh, a contemporary screenwriter <laughs> dealing with the mechanics of a uh, classic whodunit writer? It's fun because I've never written anything procedural before. And the most fun of this is the character writing, knowing that you're going to take one of your favorite characters and put him toe to toe with these remarkable actors playing remarkable characters and just letting them be eccentrics and enjoy their specificity and how he would adapt moment to moment. But then there's the fun of just the, the puzzle, the making sure that your math is checked uh, and that your data points are put in the most advantageous place. Um, that you can get a lot of help with because people are always there to tell you uh, whether it's clear or whether it makes sense. Um, and of course, you have the workings of the master to work from. Uh, the novel is, is uh, notorious for a reason. So a lot of fun is the short answer to that question. Good. Well, Anna, yeah. it was nice of you to acknowledge some of the other people who helped. <laughs> helped us out like our oh. excellent script supervisor Sylvia who was um, she was remarkable I've never shot. yeah she was someone who on every draft came to me and said here's what you got right here's what you need to help and would come with such smart solutions for not only how to fix clear mistakes in the scripts that were clear only once she saw them but um clever solutions that just made everything more elegant and more filmic she's a, one of the most gifted minds of her type I've ever worked with this uh, scene uh, with Michelle Pfeiffer was the first one that she shot, and like all actors, she bravely accepted the challenge of doing an important scene on day one, hmm. where I said it would be wonderful to capture whatever that first day excitement is. And she went for it. She's, she, is, uh, she carries her Hubbard, the woman. She yes. says, indeed, in this scene, I'm aware you think I'm a silly woman. She carried that dizzy, silly quality, which we were to judge whether it was authentic or not, with real elan. She went for it. She prepared. She was here for months beforehand looking at clothes and and uh, wigs, etc. But she, uh, on the day, came at it with a sort of the practice of a of a thoroughbred artist, ready to go. And 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 from take one on day one, she brought that kind of energy and thought she'd worked hard on it, and then uh, had had fun with it. And uh, it, it's the kind of thing that, for instance, in another context, in a scene like this between myself and uh, Derek Jacobi, he's a man who's. A performance on stage in Shakespeare's Hamlet uh, I saw when I was 15 years old, and it sort of changed oh my. my life. Uh, he'd just been a, an enormous success in a classic BBC television series called I, Claudius, in, in which he played the titular emperor. That's the, uh, every, I go back to that from time to time, and I can't believe I got to work with him on a film. And, uh, it's, well, I still can't believe I got to work with him <laughs> in a film. He, he also joined me on my last 70 mil adventure, which was mm -hmm. in Shakespeare's Hamlet, in which he played Claudius. In this scene, Johnny Depp said to me afterwards, I please apologize. I've done so, but please apologize to him. I said, who? He said, Derek Jacobi. I said, why? He said, because I had to shout at him. I don't want to shout at Derek Jacobi. <laughs> I said, honest to God, he, I think he knows you're pretending. He said, please tell him, because I worship that yeah, man. That's very funny. It's, uh, I should mention that uh, Derek Jacobi's Hamlet to you was what your Hamlet was to me uh, as a young man seeing that and uh, 
being very, very inspired by it and finally feeling like I understood what the play was there to tell me. Well, I appreciate that. And it certainly was the case for myself and, 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 and Derek and that, that sort of handover uh, as, as you're part of passing on to uh, the next group of people um, an iteration of some great work that does need an interpretive uh, regeneration is, is part of really what brings me to a story like this. Um, I think there are plenty of people who won't have seen the 74 film or mm -hmm. necessarily read the book for whom maybe we can bring our own um, uh, excitement and enthusiasm about the story um, to bear. And here I think it combines with the historical um, relationship we've had as artists means that there's a shorthand between Derek and I, a trust mm -hmm. that allows him, I think, to feel very, very comfortable in front of the camera to give a, a performance of such sort of a intimacy. And, and He's and very vulnerable reality. in it for very. a character who really has trouble with vulnerability. Yeah. It's quite moving. And I, yeah. I love this connection between you two here where Poirot, who has so much a job to do and is staring at a man who is quite possibly a suspect, still cannot help his sympathies. Yeah, well, it's a very nice line about, I'm sorry about the toothache. Uh, this was an improvised line of mine, Michael, about... Uh, I Which love I the, am I, very I, glad to take credit I for. I love the little <laughs> cakes. I, I, not, not the most inspired improvised line, but it was uh, fun. There's something about wonderful. Poirot's uh, sort of deliciousness. Penelope Cruz, the beautiful and the fantastically talented, and herself, you know, a formidable director. You know, she's done yes. a couple of shorts. They're excellent, and mm -hmm. she's, she's as smart as a nut, as you might imagine. She's a, a joy, sort of knee-tremblingly beautiful gal, uh, but the most resistant to doing an important scene like that on day one she didn't she didn't want to do that she had to be <laughs> she's excellent in it so she, had, she uh, no, her, she was it? but in the end she did with with uh, with, with she wholehearted sort of enthusiasm as did yeah. manuel here who was, oh, uh, gets such a great laugh on this line that i never realized was funny until he said it yeah he does he doesn't he doesn't lie anymore <laughs> don't uh, lie anymore and yeah, that that in a thriller uh, <laughs> where people are supposed to be yep. uh, lying or telling the truth or some version of it is a very upfront way of addressing the mm -hmm. the elephant in the room um here are some canted angles, some Dutch angles, as we say, uh, which were really Deutsch angles because they <laughs> come from German expressionism. That's what the is that the, where is yeah, that the origin is. of it? Yeah, that's the origin of it, which is so you you uh, the the two or three generations of of change is something that I enjoy uh, enormously. Um, I remember getting a lot of grief myself and Harris Zambalukos because we used many of them in our film of Thor. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it was about expressing the panels in comic books, yep. um, which were why of, like often very dramatic. But yes. I, I know some people feel it's a bit of an affectation, but it, it, I do it from, a, from an instinctive point of view if I think that it's telling a different version of the story. I mean, for instance, here, we're, we're a little higher and we have all the graphics behind uh, Penelope of the those white tablecloths and the repetition of that so there's no need to do it in that case and also we've got that amazing sort of face to look at but sometimes to um, play with the audience's sense in a thriller of what may or may not be the truth it's 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 useful to sometimes consider distorting the point of view yeah you're challenging us as to whether we should trust the person or yeah. not that their words may be unincriminating but there is something about their tone or uh, suspicions are aroused based on where you decide to point the camera and this uh, this sequence really plays that way because you take three characters that we've kind of enjoyed even you know her her dourness earlier yeah. we enjoy but now i come out of this really wondering whether i can believe a word of it 
I love what she does with her eyes here. Mm -hmm. So simple. And it's the kind of, you read the body language for that extra flicker. And with Manuel here, you also have such kindness in those eyes that, that uh, but we're so close that we're, we're really inside there checking out those retinas. And just, are you telling yeah. the truth? Because you seem so friendly and so warm. And he really does embody something that we wanted to get in there, which is the immigrant American who came to America and just is proud to wear the flag pin uh, because the country served him so well. And yet is still always burdened by people's assumptions because he is from another country, mm -hmm. that because he is Cuban, people are going to assume negative things about him. Um, and that that carries into this, that he knows suspicions coming his way, and that no matter how successful you are, someone might still judge you for it. Mm -hmm. He really plays that beautifully. And, and Penelope Cruz's uh, odd blinks in that mm -hmm. sequence with a kind of um, sort of 40-yard stare and uh, contrasted with Manuel's warmth and Willem Dafoe's um, confident uh, Germanic assertion of innocence and, and indeed superiority are, um, are a great little, it's a great, it was a great device of yours. It was on the page, so I can't take uh, uh, credit for um, the idea that at this stage, instead of the um, one by one uh, single interviews that you then um, chose to make a different kind of recipe with those three characters right. before we return to what appears to be the implacable forward movement here. But once again, as Daisy Ridley's character points out, and it's a, both a, a detective choice and a director choice, mm -hmm. um, she, she says uh, you, you put people in different environments in order to uh, exploit them as best you see fit. And, what I love uh, about uh, her take on that is she she's possibly the one who's most shrewd here, that she's starting to unpack the detective's detective methods. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I think as a result, Poirot, and I certainly see it in your performance of her, he quite enjoys her. Yes, I love I the think... dynamic here. It's like he's so hoping it's not her. Yes, and yeah. she makes herself so incriminating here. And I feel that I feel Poirot's disappointment because she's really enjoyable, and I think he enjoys. Um, her character and her intelligence as someone who understands his own as a result. And I think that, that I have the sense that Agatha Christie puts quite a bit of herself in this character, that the independent spirit of, of Mary Debenham is, for me, easily imagined in the real accounts of Agatha Christie's travel in the in the early 20s when, for instance, she, she, she traveled with her hus first husband, Archie, around the world. Mm -hmm. He was on a trade mission as a sort of junior British official, including a stop in Hawaii where she became the first female to surf upright um uh and which she seems was an to be adventure a, a fairly extraordinary thing from a woman who latterly is perceived by the world as a becardiganed bepearled dame of the british empire no and it wasn't it with her uh with her second husband who was an archaeologist she spent a good in her non-writing months of the year the other eight she would um go with him on archaeological digs and was That's quite right. a photographer uh mm -hmm. photographing all of his uh works and finds but yes she describes mary debenham as sort of coolly intelligent and it, it's it's almost uh she understands completely how people perceived her as sort of stuffy mm -hmm. and unemotional when of mm -hmm. course she had a very very rich interior life as as brought forth in the novels this uh, was also a, a first scene for daisy ridley the set that you see it uh, the, the environment was a built set those men were in front of mm -hmm. that real tunnel the real this train. is three stories up on yep. the platform where sure we spent it is, quite a bit of Long time Cross studios and for us completely transporting as far as i was concerned i was on a i was in the dinaric alps of the every, former every time uh, we were up there it felt not only like you were completely transported but that it was freezing even though yes. that was all false snow yeah uh, it you suddenly felt like uh, you needed an extra set of scarves and mittens 
Yeah, it was it was really a wonderful tribute to uh, Jim Clay's work across the crafts here. Jim Clay, Harris Ambalukos in cinematography, oh, Alexander Byrne in, in costume. Uh, Mick Audsley did a wonderful job as film editor here because he found a classical editing style inside uh, all of that that allowed us to have pace and and um, uh, variety, but but had that um, sort of elegance that that pictorially we wanted to ground it. And and maybe with a combination of those things, never better seen uh, here than in uh, a, a double carriage, which um, is in uh, purples and browns with a striking um, uh, painting behind uh, mm -hmm. Judy Dench, who's in a fabulous gown. And uh, the where, painting is it's wonderfully evocative of where everyone else would, where everyone wishes they were right at this moment. Yes, exactly. Rather than being grilled. Yeah, I'd love to be. Yeah, I'd love to be on that boat, and 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 for this to be easier. Uh, we uh, we have here this ability that all the actors share, and Judy Dench particularly exemplifies to simply play under the gaze of that sixty-five mil camera, both her. Russian hauteur and then her human pain as she un unfolds the nature of her relationship to the Armstrong family who Poirot has now ascertained to be at the center of this case. Another well-placed Harris mirror. Yes. There are several angles in which uh, yeah. he's always finds another way because, you know, Poirot is the, has, there it is. It's another yes, yeah. one of them. It's the different angles of uh, his keen eye. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, we, they, they, frankly, sometimes, uh, uh, delays on a Harris Ambaluco set are, are, are to do with fixing mirrors. We love doing everything <laughs> with camera. Or in this case, it was sometimes to do with uh, the two dogs, two beautiful and well-behaved dogs, I have to say. <laughs> but it is true what they say about children and animals, frankly, if you're a film director. Uh, they do take a little bit longer. I tell you what really takes a long time, though, Michael. Is learning is, German. Is learning German when you don't speak it. And, well uh, done. Although it seemed very, very clever of you to write down. Oh, much know, easier to put it into Google yeah, Translate. Yeah, <laughs> subtitle. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, we, we had a terrific dialect coach, Marina Tyndall, very, very She was wonderful because she also worked with each of your actors on finding the specificity of where they would be from and how to modulate to be as authentic uh, as they are. Really Very remarkable. detailed approach. Her and her colleague, uh, Helen, uh, were... Excellent with us, and uh, Marina was behind uh, the months of uh, French instruction and Belgian accent comparison. She finding. would uh, secretly come to me behind your back and tell me which words were of particular challenge that we might, <laughs> could you possibly find an alternate for this one? Because Absolutely. you were really surgical about making sure that it was all something that would fit right in your mouth. And that was one of the more extraordinary uh, rewrite experiences I've ever got to be a part of, just reading with you as you were picking what type of Belgian accent you were going to be using. And you're saying, no, no, I want to keep this line. I love the, you know, the intent of the line or the humor in the line, but I can't say that letter. <laughs> exactly. The, and often I would learn it phonetically on the page and yeah. with, with tapes and things. But then the, the ultimate goal is to sort of, as I did, I found I did, because uh, it was, he was, a, he was a character, not all characters are, uh, who for me, the, the performer was really good company. I liked to be around uh, the sort of tone and taste of his heart and soul. Um, that kindness that Agatha Christie mentioned, I think had a good rub off, although some of the bleed produced the neat freak in me at home. So <laughs> I don't know that um, it was always helpful to be quite so as obsessive compulsive uh, as the man who we now find to be uh, Really, it seems with the uh, the scent very much in his yeah, nose. Yeah, this is Poirot top of the game. This is Poirot yeah. when he's the piece. The dominoes are falling. He's able to construct one thought to another as the day follows the night. He knows that if the kimonos in his, then. 
the uh, the this uh, passkey and um, conductor's uniform is going to be in hers, be, and he is right. And then that scent, quite literal bloodhound scent, yes, yes is yes. going to put him right to McQueen, who right now is the most likely suspect for reasons he is putting together in front of our eyes. And now we, we, you know, we get to move the camera a little more and wherever we can take the opportunity to go, well, this is it, this is it, this is that he is now on the scent, he's found that person and, um, and we get a chance to be outside and yes, indeed, to meet, if not action Poirot, a, a determined physical Poirot. He's a very competent Poirot. He's not yeah. a Poirot, like, he, he might detest moving his body. Yeah. Uh, he might, you know, in breaking a sweat, but he is absolutely capable of doing it. And and you, we know that actually this sequence was a much longer one. Uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, we had a great stunt uh, supervisor in Jimmy O'Donnell who, who um, came up with a great um, chase across the ice, which Josh Gad, I have to say, for those of you who know him primarily for his uh, his comedy, his singing, and in this case, his drama, know that he is also uh, Josh Action Gad, but we've cut <laughs> it out, I'm afraid. But for now, it's still provided quite a shot in the arm, I think, in terms of... I think so, because it was always action. that, that um, balance we talked about uh, at every stage of things between tension and action, and understanding that a Poirot mystery wanted high tension in moments of real uncertainty of whether you were safe or not, the characters you were fond of were safe or not, but never wanting to go to a place that jumped genres. And uh, I, I, I love that sequence as it came out, that there's a legitimate danger, not of just of losing your suspect, uh, but of uh, being taken by him, taken down by him. places the maths do not tally because you have been stealing from me. It is full of the, the, the what is the, the, the English word? The, 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 and then, of course, it goes to high comedy here, one of my favorite ones, full of the fudge, <laughs> full of the fudge, which is one of those great moments, like you, you put something in the script uh, that starts, that lights a fuse, and then the actor just explodes the TNT with a line like that. Uh, I, I'm so glad you got to be as funny as you are. Which is very <laughs> well. We we uh, we definitely um, see here uh, a kind of potential for a kind of righteous anger in in Poirot uh, that is based on uh, what he's finding across this investigation, which is the repetition of lies and the accumulation of lies across all sorts of characters. To which he has a, there's a there's sort of moral effrontery that that. Uh, um, uh, yeah, he doesn't delight in picking apart lies and finding them and going, look how clever I am. It's more constant disappointment that someone he would have much preferred to like yeah. is lying to him. And that starts the Mary, you know, earlier Mary Demidum, you see it, you see it here, although he always suspected McQueen. And then, of course, he's about to start uh, grilling Dr. Arbuthnot and find that he, too, though very trustworthy on the surface uh, with all the right answers, does uh, his, his narrative breaks down when he starts questioning him about Mary and their relationship. And you feel with Poirot, at least I felt, and, and tried to allow to occur what a friend of mine once said with a sigh. He said, I, he said, I, I, God, I find the human condition so disappointing. <laughs> and I think there's some quality evoked in your screenplay for Poirot that I at least find myself responding to. He doesn't give up on it. Uh, he uh, doesn't sort of feel sorry for it himself or pat- particularly assume some special sensitivity that other people do not have. But it is his reaction sometimes, which essentially is balanced by, yes, a desire. He wants to see the best in people, um, but the best is complex and it requires everybody on their best game. Um, and perhaps everybody like him, but of course everybody 
can't be like him because otherwise we'd all be rearranging eggs. And, you know, <laughs> that and, is the tragedy of Poirot's life: is that the world doesn't look the way he the, needs it to look. Yeah, and, his, his little originalities are not fully functional no. in the real world, where people have different kinds of flaws. No, you can barely get it together at breakfast. Not certainly not once lunch rolls around. Exactly, and that's why and, he's always threatening to quit everything and go raise vegetable marrows. That's like, the, the the constant refrain: is I'm going to quit, no more crime, and I'm going to be a farmer and just vegetable marrows all day long. And, and, that's and what he no does. more. Yeah. No more intellectual, human, moral mess. Right. He doesn't want to be. He doesn't really putting any more. No, feet he wants to go to actual. Poo. He wants to be in actual mud. He yes. is very happy with true dirt and donkey poo. Yeah, <laughs> but not the human mess. And consistency, and mm-hmm. and, and 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 simplicity, and uh, uh, and and certainty, and mm-hmm. uh, knowledge. Not all of these variables. Man says one thing, then runs away, tells one lie, changes it. Um, and now, of course, he's going to, as it were, drill down into McQueen's story. Provides a, a lovely opportunity for, a, for another fine bit of acting amongst this ensemble here. It's Josh Gad's uh, revelation that uh, there is a, a connection to to the Armstrong case. It's it's one of the places in the movie where uh, where everyone could. One offered up um, the power of performance here. The story, of course, working powerfully as as, as Christie. Reveals through Poirot, but I'd love to, one I'd layer like to, of the onion. I'd like to compliment one of your very bold camera choices here uh, as director and as actor, where this stays in a single shot for a very long time, giving it entirely to the actor, McQueen, to giving it to Josh Gad and allowing everything to play on his face. You could turn back on yourself, you could hand it to Book, but instead this is very much his moment, which he carries. He absolutely does, but that that is a choice made by a director and by a star. Uh, to hand things off and the, the entire thing becomes stronger for it. And I was very, I remember seeing that in, in as early as the first cut and just thinking how grateful once again I was that you were uh, both in front and behind the camera on this. Well, this felt very much as though, um, uh, as a strength in the movie, this this character, the power of the Josh's performance, and this uh, singularity of 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 cut would be helpful because, as we know, one of the surprising and clever things that uh, you did and clever is a very good word when it comes to Christie. You have to be clever because God yes. knows she is. And um, one of the things you fox us with here is. Uh, uh, something that um, I think genuinely, uh, it, certainly when I read it through me, and I thought, this, this, I, this, I think this is a, a, what, what's happening here. This is definitely uh, a departure. Yeah, and, uh, it, you mean with this uh, yeah. this next piece here? Yes, we, you know, one of the in the adapt adaptation of it, we wanted to honor as much as possible what we could, uh, and I think we do. the The difference between the novel and the film primarily is that in the novel, Poirot knows the solution pretty much by the middle. And then he's just enjoying piecing it together bit by bit. Um, and so there's a bit of the preposterousness of continuing talking to everyone uh, just to get all the details of it or just the, it's it's more formalities for him. And that works beautifully in the novel. But here we wanted to keep audience and uh, and Poirot by extension, or by, uh, the extension of the audience uh, on their feet trying to figure out what happened. So he thinks he has McQueen there. It seems very clear because of that undeniable personal connection to the case that makes him absolutely a suspect. And then 
while we're sitting there looking at him, someone attacks Mrs. Hubbard. And clearly that means that the killer either still the... is still out there and that we're not done here. Mm-hmm. Um, the Not knowing the length of the film, uh, you know, not knowing, having that little bar on your DVR telling you how much there is to go <laughs> is actually a great... Um, Part of the is part of the fun because we could have ended it there and said, okay, that's in, instead he becomes a red herring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and here's Poirot being very hurt by that personally because he thought he had it. It did make sense a moment ago, and now this new development of Mrs. Hubbard stabbing uh, weighs on him because he didn't have it. And so her accusing him and saying, "I thought you were a genius. Why isn't this done?" She he looks at her and thinks she's right. I am failing in this moment, and that bothers him tremendously. One of the boldest things that Christie does, but maybe it's also a factor of numbers, is that we, having met the Andranies right at the beginning of the story, we've left them now for yes. for a long time. They, now, their diplomatic I, immunity makes them immune to uh, immune suspicion, to. or at least conversation and coverage. Well, it's partly, of course, because uh, Madame Andrani, played beautifully here by mm-hmm. Lucy Lucy Boynton, who made a, just a tremendous couple with, with Sergei Polunin. Um, that character decides to withdraw, to retreat. They do not go to dinner. Uh, um, the Count Andrani occasionally mm-hmm. shows up in the group with the others, but she, under the influence of um, uh, uh, drugs, um, chooses to uh, stay in her room. So there's a legitimacy for why she's gone. And I suppose it's a, a simple, and at this stage of a story that has contained um, a really a large number of characters, more than maybe mm-hmm. uh, modern um film thriller writers would do by way of suspects, uh, suddenly perhaps does it send you immediately back to, well, of course it did. Oh, I'd forgotten yeah, about Yeah, we hadn't this. even considered that. And then, and then, and then, or, 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 or is it, as I suspect it is, part of now the double bluff? Oh, but now they want us to think this because we haven't seen them for a while. But That is know. the the joy of Christie is that when you have that many plates spinning in the air, it is, it is both bug and feature. You have yeah. to, you, you have so many people that you get to keep bouncing all of your suspicions from one to another and you don't know whether it's did we safely tuck them away because they were the true culprit? Uh, or are they now just an, another feint before we come back to something? Yeah, and when you do that, of course, and when you do come back to something, if you can do a couple of things, which is uh, give us the new plot material that may emerge from said interview, but also in this case, give us what you might call the genuine pain of this character. So Lucy Boynton suddenly reveals in a way that is sends us a bit of a shiver down your spine as a spine as I'm afraid of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sort of weight of sadness and melancholy here that also makes you feel at one and the same time, even if you believe, well, you know, she's out of action. She's too, she's too um, under the influence to do anything. She, she's revealing a sort of uh, a, a, a muted passion that could also be as dangerous as that same swiftness of movement that means that with the very first time we met Penelope Cruz, yes. she whipped around and grabbed a... Um, uh, stopped a, a pickpocket um, with a, a sort of violence that's surprising. So this depth of feeling that you touch or that brood that Sergei has, which we know to underpin yeah, we know that there's violent the potential disposition. for murder there and that, or with her, that there's the potential for blind rage, that she mm-hmm. would do something in the blackout of everything. But, uh, but, but she's what, clearly someone affected by something. Yes, indeed. Which is going to make her very suspect very quickly. Yeah, that, that, that heaviness, that weight of the secret is there, but of course, uh, and very nicely you do it uh, in a moment. Uh, we have uh, um, the Countess Andrani just betray with a single word yes, the possibility of connection with yet one more liar on the train. And here, a scene I enjoyed playing very much, partly because, it, as you alluded to in, in, in the approach, 
we wanted here to find a Poirot who is working it out as it as in it goes real along, time, you know, yes. in real time, not not passionate thoughts recollected in tranquility, or <laughs> um, or a man who demonstrates the sort of cleverness of me. Uh, but instead, somebody who who uh, I, I, I also, as we see him working it out, you see, is you know carries some quality of offense. I mean, it hurts him. He's insulted. Yeah. He doesn't like what his brain yeah. uh, is able to find. I, I do love that music cue of Patrick's when the word governess comes through. Yes, yes. That moment of connection, and it was just one of those discoveries. Uh, I saw it in the dailies of the way you found that moment, and. Um, just realized that this thing was taking on a life beyond anything you could imagine in script level. It's about the moments when the actors come together and just the chaos of those combinations of these three people in that room until a, just an absolutely indelible moment is formed. Here's a moment indelible where <laughs> Willem Dafoe, out of things for a while, takes a beautiful cinematic pause. He's so sweet. When he came to see the movie, he said, thanks for holding on to me there. Thanks. He said, because it's a it's great, it's a nice piece of timing. You know, yeah. it was you, who was it? Somebody you knew, beat, beat, yep. beat, beat, beat. Yeah, and it's a deliberate there. choice. He yeah. gave it to you and yeah. you found it and you recognized the virtue of uh, patience. It's... It also, he, so as an actor, he yeah. gives you what the audience want at that stage, which is, the, I think, after the drama. The relief. Of it, they of want it. Some, something yeah. to laugh at or laugh with. And also, it's, it's a slightly hysterical laughter of my god there's another one there's another one <laughs> again we're gonna do this yeah oh my god but then he, he exonerates himself by apologizing for, for his horrible racism. comments earlier yes uh which you know is uh again commentary on so much of the actual casual racism that comes out in these conversations and in the period uh, and then referring him to himself as a uh, half a heeb and Just, i like here, here is casualness uh, about it all uh, uh, we, we like, again, uh, Harrison Belukos, uh, in that case in the hands of Luke Redgrave, who found with the B camera there, um, uh, beautiful compliment to Roger Pierce's A camera, uh, the, uh, 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 the triple image of Willem Dafoe through the glass yes. at a moment where, he's well, a, he had an accent a second ago, now he's telling a different kind of lie. But he's lying again, so it's the three-faced <laughs> man. And uh, it bears mention, uh, Luke Redgrave, as your B camera operator uh, who found that shot, uh, has an auspicious connection to the, the original film, Indeed, because his um, aunt... Uh, Vanessa Redgrave played Mary Debenham in the uh, 1974 film. So he had a particularly interesting first day <laughs> yes, because of that, in, of just indeed. the family legacy of it all. Uh, but even here, just again, that, that three face in the moment that he's uncovered in that lie. Uh, I do remember uh, getting help from a very industrious assistant, Grace Fisher Centeno, uh, when I said, I need you to help me find a gun that Poirot can know the difference between so he can parse out the exact years this man has been a policeman or not. And he found it for me. And it was one of the most incredible things that I remember being on the set for... Um, uh, when your uh, props master came to me with the gun, and I took a picture of it with the <laughs> line that was still in uh, in you know in in the uh, sides for the day, and sent it to him and said, "Just so you think your hours grinding were for naught." <laughs> there it was. Oh, the okay. luxury um, casting alongside that well and detailed um, uh, expression of of uh, of. Uh, deductive power through yeah. the through your assistant and and, and the prop master <laughs> it's kind of incredible is, is also matched by when people ask me about the nature of the casting i said well when you got someone like willem defoe who comes in at that stage of the game and just uh, as it were he shoots he scores you know yeah. it's a home run with the character and willem handled it uh, beautifully we should talk you know about this character of uh, Catherine. um 
The books have Poirot um, uh, for a while um, distracted by uh, a character called Vera Kossoff, who was mm -hmm. uh, a Russian uh, countess. I believe in a line you had in one version of the script, he referred to her by saying, she had one green eye, she had one blue eye. Yes. I could not look at her, I could not look away. <laughs> um, and that was in for a while, actually. Yes. And then, and then, and for a while, to be perfectly honest, we also had this picture mm -hmm. contain um, images of former military companions of uh, Yeah, it was, there were two aspects of his past that were very much of interest to us. Uh, th that military beginning that suggests that he had seen some darkness uh, in his youth, uh, both as a policeman, but in World War One, which was a particularly brutal war that he would have fought in incredible times and awful times, and also romance, if he had ever had his toes in those dangerous waters hmm. and come out and said, for a man who is uh, quite literally obsessed with uh, order uh, and, and finding uh, balance in things, war and romance uh, would yeah. be... Awfully anathema. Yes, yes. Uh, so yeah. we, we dug those things out. The most disorder. And we landed on Catherine, and I believe uh, were we lucky enough to pursue the adventures of Poirot in in uh, in Egypt. Yes, uh, we, may, the, 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 we know uh, those stories we want to tell. Yeah, we think that there are, there's gold in them, there hills. We I hope. also thought it played very well against uh, Ms. Hubbard, as you know, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Her flirtations with Poirot uh, seem more deliberate to throw him off because she can sense that there's, there's something a in him soul that there. is that there's a romantic soul that is unnerved by having it engaged, uh, because it, and it's one of the things that can throw the great mind. I was unnerved sitting on these milk pails because <laughs> so we close were, to the edge. So close to the edge, and oh, this, this shot proved really live and in camera that we built that viaduct, we put that train up there, and uh, uh, and it was it was a, it was a long way up, and it's nice. It's real wind outside in a real um, winter's day in in uh, in just outside London, where Daisy Ridley's hair is being thrown. And there's, I like in this scene, you know, there's a sort of sadness about um, Poirot's um, burgeoning belief that probably, or is it a belief or is it a, is it a conversational I just think gambit? he hopes so it much it's trap? not her because I think he quite likes her. And I think he does. She is right now the most suspicious and yeah. that's going to be awfully disappointing for him. The, the link to the romance with the Hubbard flirtation, Catherine in the picture, mm -hmm. and to the women generally, I think was part of the Poirot that uh, it seemed to me uh, was was partly coloured by a gallantry, a civility, a courtliness, a, a sort of chivalric kind of regard for mm. women. Not necessarily realistic or, um, you know, um, again, functioning uh, uh, very well, but a, a, an, ad an admiration of all that is glorious and beautiful in a woman um, uh, without sort of prurient sort of sexual overtones that are kind of a knightly kind of quality mm -hmm. is is some sort of base camp characteristic of of how he, he deals with the Which is also a blind sex. spot for him. Yes, it's makes vulnerable. And when you try to impose your own views on a world that doesn't conform to them, you have blind spots. And yeah. here we have one of them, and of course, the surprise of someone who she may have been working with. I, uh, when when we first previewed the film, it was uh, a great pleasure of mine, having insisted in the sound mix mm -hmm. that we turn the volume up for that gunshot. It made me jump every time. <laughs> and uh, it also it marked uh, in, in audio fashion a moment in the life of the audience experience where uh, they really go, oh, no, no, no. That's We were, we missed out on the kindly door. How could the oh, but handsome, I liked him. Yes. compassionate, witty, you know, firm, Who sings like an angel. Yes, <laughs> Leslie Odom Jr. How could he possibly have done this? And look, he's looking pretty mean with that uh, 
gun. Here's another moment I really enjoyed. Leslie Odom came in, was uh, wonderfully um, open, um, actor of great sensitivity and grace, and played this big scene, almost on his, I think it was his first day, and there it was, a wide shot that moves through into this massive close-up in uh, in uh, 70 mil or 65 mil, the other 5 mil being the, uh, the soundtrack of our celluloid <laughs> large format. But he... Uh, he really held his nerve and, and um, I think felt you, you, you felt this depth of passion, not only for um, the protection and the reputation of his friend, uh, the, the late Colonel Armstrong, but also underneath that, the, the real sort of um, uh, romantic passion for Mary Debenham. Yes, you feel like there's a protection going on that, he, yeah. that what he's saying might be to protect her. There's still some to the story. Uh, but it's, the intensity is clear. It's also one of these moments that for those who remember the novel very, very well, they are now wondering, ah, yeah. are we changing the ending? Yeah, exactly. Uh, what, and to a degree, we, we are because we're uh, stamping, uh, putting a flag in the ground and saying this is going to make their culpability very hard to come back from. They both admitted to something. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But the film is not over yet. It is not over if it yet. Was, if it was 90 minutes long, uh, there are many fans who would come screaming for our heads. But. Absolutely. But we, they, 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 uh, they might have come screaming for our heads if we'd allowed the fight between myself and Leslie Odom to go on at the length we shot it, which was <laughs> significantly longer. Uh, but we knew that we wanted instead to, to enter the, the back into the world of the epic stage with that massive wide shot of the train and the frozen lake underneath and to give that breath of air, as with this shot, to the beginning of uh, the denouement. And here, an evocation of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, a painting uh, which sits on the wall of a chapel in uh, Milan, which I had the pleasure of seeing a couple of years ago. And the image, as it's done for millions of people over centuries, stayed with me to see it live, was to see something very powerful just in terms of graphic human drama. And uh, to see it in this way was to in a way be an equivalent to something you, Michael, had in previous drafts of the script, a way of sort of seeing the world as Poirot saw it, which was not directly or literally. It, 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 it's, it showed us a kind of um, um, a kind of expansive, lateral thinking, almost surreal quality that in one version of it had you lay people out on the snow. Mm -hmm. in, in our translation of it here, the idea was that somehow he'd seen it in these biblical terms. So now the black here was the Last Supper. He, the, the Judas was there somewhere. Who, who, exactly. Who, that it's not just that it takes it outside and puts them in a tableau that's appealing to look at visually, which it certainly is, but in that famous image there is one person to blame. And at this <laughs> point, we are led to believe, and Poirot would prefer to believe, and uh, because that at least makes the world less awful, that there is one crack in the wall. There is one broken soul capable of murder, and we are ex absolutely expecting to have that single person unmasked. Uh, so I thought that was a masterstroke on your part to evoke that image. Again, and just the idea of bringing it outside and using this... Um, tunnel, building it out and giving them that space. It it allowed, it also evokes um, courtroom drama. For sure. That rather than being stuck once again in uh, the dining car with many, many people looking in Poirot prowling, he is presenting, uh, and it is adversarial. It's us versus them. It's me versus this group of potential 
killers. Well, me and the train versus this yes, group. Yes, that's so true. The graphics of it, they lay, they lay out all the pieces, one train massively behind. And that one icon detective. just there the whole time. I mean, the, one yeah. of the best things about this particular book is that it has the train. Like you can just put that train in an image and we know exactly which, which movie we are talking yeah. about. So yeah. anytime we have that over your shoulder, the weight of it uh, makes me happy. Um, you know, it's a, really quite the challenge, I think, uh, although it, it, it may not seem like sort of heavy lifting, but it's quite the challenge, I think, for all the listeners here. I saw a documentary about the 74 film in which the beautiful Jacqueline Bissett, with whom I've had the chance to work, um, and she's a lovely woman, was asked, what was it like filming the denouement sequence? Uh, to which she replied, excruciating. <laughs> um, so I was interested to hear why she said, God, we had to do it again and again and again. Oh, I hope they were, it wasn't excruciating for our uh, actors this time. I'm very so, happy to say, to I go on to say, was. that that was not the case here. Well, it was partly because yeah. we kind of broke it up wherever we could. It was but, uh, the first things we filmed was your yeah, side of it. Exactly, That's exactly. Right. But what I would say is that it's a hard thing for them to listen without, as it were, doing too much, without sort of acting everything you know the, mm -hmm. and, and I think uh, the ability to listen was something that in this case I wanted not to overshoot so um, we did not do tons of coverage on on the actors side of this on, on the on the suspect side of it because I wanted it to be as fresh as possible yeah. and there were only a couple of occasions where I did the whole sequence as Poirot um, on camera with with them um, because I didn't want in Jacqueline's words for it to be excruciating either. <laughs> you wanted it, them to come back for the sequel. Yeah, yeah. But, but also, but also for, I wanted them to feel fresh and that yeah. it wasn't somehow a torture to hear um, the repetition. She said they were they were trapped, um, you know, by design in a, in a, in a carriage and, and Albert Finney's wonderful Poirot strode up and down, but they were all sat around and um, it had the good and the bad of that impact. Here, it feels also, we, we started with a religious image, but now it feels as though we're, we're going to the jury, mm -hmm. uh, the 12 good men and women and true, um, <laughs> for, for their, for their uh, as it were, confessional uh, moment. And I, I personally enjoy so much the sense in which, as it were, the layers of this onion have been peeled away and now... Um, the scales drop and we we see the insides of these people. There are subtle adjustments in the performances, but that look from Manuel, I think, is is a simple but beautiful thing. Poirot just un exposing them to their essences. Every secret is is put forward. Uh, in the adaptation of it, I think the, the, probably the hardest part, uh, the most work, was just taking what is pages and pages and pages of uh, what works beautifully in a novel and trying to get it into... I remember being very proud that I'd brought his speech down to 12 pages at a point. <laughs> and then you and I working to bring it down even further. And then being so great. I've never been so grateful for things to be cut in the editing room and for it to work because it's such a stronger scene for sticking with its most muscular uh, portions. And again, you being very generous that you stayed with the pieces that reflected back on the cast you were facing. Well, the, the, the human dimension is at the heart of things. Uh, and that applied to just generally people might be interested to know that across those flashback sequences, all, all of the performances were peopled by actors who had worked in the theatre company that we've spent many years um, uh, touring all over the place. And we recently did a, a whole season in London's West End at the Garrick Theatre. So, um, for instance, the character of Suzanne was played by Hayat Kamil who's a terrific uh, actress who, in, in short measure, as Suzanne, the, the sister mm -hmm. of uh, Pierre-Michel, makes in a very small amount of screen time a terrific uh, and a moving impression, but also Phil Dunster and Miranda Raisin as Colonel 
and uh, John Armstrong and Sonia Armstrong also from our various productions of Romeo and Juliet and The Winter's Tale by Shakespeare also um, made great contributions in small measure and it was a great luxury to have them as well as people like this, Miss Michelle Pfeiffer who can chill and thrill the bones to take off that wig and in so doing sort of letting the her insides pour out as uh, Linda Arden is revealed. You just feel all the rage and all the willingness to kill in that moment. It's it's quite a transformation from the flibber to gibbet from the you know, the the woman the silly woman who could distract you with her chatter. It to wait, it realizing really, it was all the yeah. act. Yeah. It waits. It felt it felt like there was a sort of a the, the the tolling of a bell when she does that. It feels like it just goes deep and I personally again loved seeing a formidable performer take that opportunity to and know how to do it on screen, which is with simplicity, but underneath it, a kind of commitment that the audience can sort of intuit. Yeah. Here's the answer. <laughs> it's coming. Platformed with, who does it? And I'll tell you. <laughs> and I and have that great pleasure of being in audiences where I've watched or seen the body language of people. Where people... Who say, no! I heard oh. in, in our uh, premiere in London, I heard people behind me gasp, and it was so rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also just that, that Patrick Doyle cue coming in when you cut yeah. to the shot of them all staring, and you realize that this was a single broken heart. And these pieces, which I hope reward repeat viewing, where you realize this combined with this combined with this is what it took, and you can start. And it's also, I think, uh, in the editorial, in the edit of this, you chose to not tell a lot, which is, I think, uh, a huge compliment to the audience that they can now continue participating in this. Mm -hmm. yeah, because the in, math all the checks out. This, yeah. Sylvia Parks did not let us get away with anything. All of the math checks out in the film, but you could, not every piece is, is handed. There are still some things where you go, oh, and that must have been, and that must have been. And that's the fun participatory viewing of But at the, of at the, the center genre. of it is what's about to be revealed, the, yes. act, the act itself, uh, which needed numbers... And it needed in the snatched time they had because the detective lies next door mm -hmm. is the capacity in each of these civilized people to let the poison of deep grief which has blighted their lives be expunged or cathartically, therapeutically removed by this awful, violent act. It has a sort of terrible, a terrible sadness there might, for some people, feel uh, a terrible beauty or, or um, justice, a, a notion that we're going to discuss in a moment as we return yes. to, as but it were, the, the It's unpleasant, and I, yeah. I, I find it so fascinating in the actor's choices uh, whose knife blows strike home and whose are shallow. <laughs> that, that you, it is a surprise who is the toughest and who struck the killing blow. They all participate, but then there's, you know, they're the surgical ones, they're the rageful ones, they're the ones that just can't bear to, you know, the knife tip doesn't go deep, and then they're the ones who just drive it in and... And now they leave like it. rats. Yeah. Now they leave like rats. So sinking ship gone, power of numbers diminished, now guilt unleashed. Is it closure or is it a life blighted by the horrific memory of what they did, the, the taking of a life for a life, an eye for an eye? And she's still able to, Ms. Hubbard is able to find the cool head. And Linda say, Arden and, and say... say 
It's nothing. And she she knows in her head, I have several things I need to do to clean this. Yeah. Um, she may make mistakes, she may not, but it is in her in the most emotional distress she's ever experienced, she is mm -hmm. still able to keep it through. Ultimately, the leader of it. Mm -hmm. It was my plan! And now we see with fire the sort of passionate uh, defense, the beginnings of uh, the reordering of lives after the act of killing. Um, so in her case, it's to suggest that the others be exonerated because she was the, the architect of the plan. But we're already beginning to understand, particularly as Poirot monitors it, that it is not that simple. Uh, there was right, there was wrong, now there is you. But you is very problematic, not just mm -hmm. you, Linda Arden, but all of you, the 12 of you. Um, and I was fascinated when we previewed this film um, halfway through sort of post-production, it was clear that our audiences wished for it to be complex. Mm -hmm. They did not unilaterally say, yes, revenge, job done, it's all fine. The taking of a life for a life, if taken to some logical extension, might suggest that no person would be standing. At what point do you draw a line under violent acts and say, yeah. at some point it, it, it must end, and although the loss of the innocent is at the center of it, um, is finally that little girl or the Armstrong family? Um, is, 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 what is assuaged by this, uh, this brutal act, um, other than the removal of clearly uh, an appallingly mm -hmm. uh, unpleasant uh, individual who did a terrible thing. But where does it leave us then? This section of the piece allows uh, your screenplay to ask and for our audience to really consider and feel, not just think about what next, what is Well, how can we let's weigh that morality? Uh, yeah. can, and, and the question we talked about is, can a murder save a life? Mm -hmm. That these are lives that may not be able to continue, certainly, Helena, and... Poirot constructs his... Provocation. Yep, yeah, his little test, uh, which leads you to believe that he knew where this conversation was going to go from the beginning, uh, or not. You can interpret it either way. Um, but that he wanted to know if these are killers. It would have been so much easier for mm -hmm. him if one of them had grabbed the gun or made a jump for him, because then he'd say, okay, these are rats. These are, these are rats mm -hmm. scurrying, and it is easy to punish that. But now what he's seeing are... Victims, uh, and that's complicated. Uh, I, I, I hope uh, if we've succeeded in our tasks here, people leave this not sure what he should do, mm -hmm. or if what he does in the end is right. And he certainly isn't sure. Uh, no, this is going to carry with him. The man on the balcony at the beginning of the story, um, and he brings into play here the idea of. Um, Conscience. The law of man is not enough, says Pilar Estravados. But uh, the law of man, Pyro might argue, is all that we have yeah. um, to separate us from the beasts, and we must be better than the beasts. And so when people have asked me, you know, on occasion, what is the... Uh, everybody knows the plot of this story. I mm -hmm. defy that. I absolutely... <laughs> I dispute that that's the case. If, uh, if people are anything like me, an avid reader of uh, crime fiction, but someone who happily understands who did it when the author would like me to find out who did it and then even with due respect to the author forgets that answer yes. 10 minutes later um i think there are quite a few of us like that so i don't it's know the journey people, remember i don't know that people do remember but I, I would say that what what we tried to offer here i suppose if the surprise twist was anything perhaps it was this this moral twist this this invitation to consider um what is what is justice as that magnificent train finally 
uh, escapes the the. The, 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 but there was an the image you, you'd conjured that we thought about for a long time that stayed with me, even though it didn't stay in the film, which was that as we pull away, the entire viaduct just collapses. Mm -hmm. And emotionally, that's how I felt every time I saw this, that whatever was behind us is broken, mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. the world mm -hmm. Poirot's left behind is broken because he can never look at it. Whatever his next cases are, they are going to be colored uh, by the lens of memory on this particular mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. It is never going to be simple for him again. Uh, I love this bit of these bits of acting here, the, the playing cards in the most dire moment that need yeah. to just pass time because it's all too horrible. Yes, what else can you do? What else? Can, and the 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 hand touching a hand of just reassurance. They they we know that they've been through something together, and my sympathy goes to them. And that they may now be walking to their death or, or on a train to their death. It's and they Yugoslavia. accept it. It's 1934, yeah. and uh, they, you're murdered, you're hung. It's and so... uh, they, they accept it because they all know they've done something terrible that they needed to do, uh, but because they are not killers by na their nature, uh, they are willing to accept their consequences. This um, was our real train in our real one mile of track with our real station built at uh, Long, Cross, uh, station, Long Cross Studios uh, outside London. And so that uh, long steady cam shot that brought uh, the, the train and the characters onto the train now has its mirror in a long steady cam shot that starts that same carriage in which he met uh, Josh. And we walk Gad all the way out. Is now we walk all the way out, but the train that was full of champagne and linen flying and crystal glass and expectation and uh, an invitation and glamour is now uh, almost hearse like and quiet in the snow. And uh, it's, uh, it's such an elegant bookend. Uh, bookends, the way you bring us on the train and the way Poirot must leave it uh, completely changed. That the, the color has been taken out of his view of it. And, and the, the bookend also it features uh, a response finally to the letter that he was not able to write to mm -hmm. Colonel Armstrong when asked for help in finding the Armstrong baby. And yet with Poirot's sense of completion and uh, obsession, the letter must be written even if only in his head Yep. And uh, One he must answer the correspondence. And unusually, yes, indeed, unusually. Although he is not, uh, he is not disposed to be judge and jury. He is detective. He will lay things out. He searches for the truth, but it is others, perhaps, it's for them to judge. But in this case, in this isolated case, in this unusual, perhaps, unique situation, he has to consider a different kind of possibility. So the man that we met at the beginning of the film who felt the, the weight of a position that said there is right, there is wrong, there is nothing in between, has now to accept that that romantic soul, that, that, that sensitivity, that disposition to wish for human beings to be better than the beasts and yet to confront the evidence that often they are not including in this case where 12 beasts attacked a defenseless human being in a compartment on and a train. Though he may be a beast himself, may not have deserved it. I, there's something you found here uh, when we discussed what this final speech should be by him, that he must learn to live with the imbalance. And it's an invocation of things he said earlier on the balcony and even in the very funny moment of stepping in the, uh, in the donkey poop. Um, you know, it's the imbalance of things, things that were amusing and a part of his 
private rituals, his own internal religion of how he's going to face the world now become very, very serious that are now going to be soul changing for him. So yes, I love that. And to... I, I, I love uh, when you brought that line up, it, it, I found it very elegant. Carrying the burden of this seems like a very heavy possibility until <laughs> this young man, Tom Hansen, lets us know that there's been a murder, as he puts it, on the bloody Nile. Uh, now, this was your line, Michael. I, uh, I had yes, nothing yes. to do with no, with, no. I with, take it with, with crying for a sequel here. It's uh, crying for it's, you know what? I uh, it's my tip of the hat to Mr. Nolan in his first Batman film, <laughs> where he tells us, of course, of course, this is just the beginning of something you're going to enjoy forever. Uh, but also, it's to say that. Um, Poro is not broken. He is uh, merely bent for the moment, and he is going to marshal his resolve, and that's what he's here for. He will. You can say all you want that you want to retire and grow vegetable marrows, but you will not. You are here to detect crime, and make the world a little better bit by bit. And we see that uh, response to the tie, the line, the hmm. invitation, the next exotic place, and we also see the man alone, with the train leaving. In real terms, that real train was on a real track with all of those real actors inside, and this shot was all in camera, and uh, another one rehearsed for many, many, many hours in which we um, left that uh, compartment and walked from one end of the train to the other, eventually using some cuts in the piece, but, but, but the, the, the body of the shot mm -hmm. was a single one in which all moving parts were, were working in real time. And, uh, you know, the, the, the development of Poirot's sort of heart and soul were also moving in a kind of tender real time. And Pat Doyle's lovely minor and uh, a dissonant chord at the it's, end. It's there. melancholic. He's it's, been through something and yeah. he has survived it, but he has changed. Yeah. We then, of course, went on to uh, produce um, a song uh, with uh, Pat uh, using the beautiful theme from uh, the Armstrong family. Uh, uh, lyrics by someone tangentially involved with the film. Yes, exactly. Uh, yours, yours truly, daring to uh, uh, pick up the lyricist pen, really with a, a very strong kind of desire to feel um, a, a kind of, um, if not conclusion, a sort of a coda, in this case musical and through this uh, rather plaintive, simple lyric, for Mrs. Hubbard mm -hmm. and the expression of the the pain that is the loss of Daisy. You might say, well, well, why did they do all of this? Because of what she feels and expresses in the song, which you have in the screenplay, which she has in her performance, but which felt could, could at the end of this particular story just have an expression in a kind of an air, if you like, that was um, inspired by, you know, the kinds of uh, Celtic... Um, um, melodies of, of something as universal and recognizable as, as Danny Boy where hmm. really it's about it's about loss it's a, it's a plaintive song of grief about about loss that are saying super simple things we miss you we won't forget you um, and to me it means that uh, I, I, I hope that Linda Arden Mrs. Hubbard uh, is able to live out her life, that she doesn't yeah. need to die or just to recede to the point of insignificance, but rather there's, that though she's endured an unspeakable tragedy, there are at least days ahead of her where mm -hmm. she can continue to feel uh, and, and exist. So I, I like that. Well, I enjoyed very much, and it's worth uh, saying here, um, uh, uh, tipping our hat to our distinguished 
producers, Mr. Kimberg and Mr. Gordon and Mr. Schaefer and Miss Hoffland. Yes. Um, who all contributed enormously to the... Mr. Pritchard of the Christie Estate. Very much so, yes. Uh, both uh, uh, grandson, grandson and great-grandson had... Uh, Matthew and James mm -hmm. had uh, um, a terrific uh, role to play. And uh, it always amazes me, uh, were you, as it were, where were you the day the end credits for The Abyss started? Because that was the moment when James Cameron's amazing film first introduced the notion of end credits that were six minutes long. <laughs> um, and now it's almost standard that that's the case. If you recall, in the golden age of Hollywood, uh, there would be there'd be a card at the front of the movie, yeah. uh, which might have um, set, music, makeup supervisor, um, and then produced by, directed by, and. At this point in the movie, there would simply be a card saying, the end. <laughs> That's right. And you'd be done. You'd love it. A few names I want to point out. First, there's the sea cameraman, Michael Green, who's not me. That is a separate Michael Green uh, of considerable talent. Uh, Rob Ashford, um, who is a wonderful director who you worked with in a very interesting fashion. Rob uh, was, uh, was well, along with Jimmy Yule, uh, uh, Rob was my associate and at every point in the run-up to the movie and uh, through... A lot of the uh, work on set essentially directed and, uh, and and found a way to wrangle my Poirot. Jimmy Yule, who's been a performance consultant on the last couple of um, movies I've made, also had, as uh, Rob had, a sort of honesty and directness that meant that I was protected in the performance department. Well, you're doing so many things all uh, at once that there's someone watching and uh, that you can conspire and confabulate with yeah. uh, privately about your own performance, uh, which is remarkable in the film. So. It was amazing seeing you work with them that way. And then there, you know, with all the names in the credits, all of whom contributed so much, there's the, uh, our, our benefactors at Fox who don't get title cards in these yeah. things, but do deserve yeah, but we uh, merit. Take, we should uh, know. Big, big shout out. So starting at the tippy top, uh, Stacy Snyder as uh, mm -hmm. chairman uh, waved the flag for this uh, project, which uh, you had worked so assiduously with, with Steve Asbell. Yes, from day one with Steve Asbell, who's exactly. a friend to writers everywhere. To Emma Watts, who, you know, all of them from day one, first discussions of this, knew that they wanted to make this type of film. And that when I came in and said, let's make the right film, let's honor the book, let's just make it beautiful and as best we can, they were the ones championing that. That is what they wanted. It's a film they're very proud of. And there was never a point where there were any bad guys at the studio saying, let's do a disservice. Quite um, the opposite. And Emma Watts, no. uh, particularly, I think, had a, had a real kind of guts in terms of shepherding this through producerially with the rest of her team. Yes. And uh, I have to say that my experience at Fox was uh, excellent and some great people. Ted Galliano is head of post-production and did uh, a wonderful job, including uh, ensuring that the delivery of the 70mm prints went as well as it did. Chris Aronson, who's head of distribution and who, like the rest of that team uh, of excellent co-workers, Tommy Maratu, Pam Levine, uh, Heather Phillips, uh, Natalie Bajeljak, um, Catherine Willings, uh, Andrew Cripps, Kieran <laughs> Breen, um, a, a, a team across the, 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 the Fox company that got behind this movie so well, that's through um, uh, previews, through the delivery of it. Joe, who produced the amazing campaign in terms of trailers and visuals. Mm -hmm. um, Erica did a great uh, digital uh, campaign. There was not a weak link in uh, the group that helped put together what was a... No, this is, this is the it, studio that when you said, let's shoot it on film, 
Yeah, shoot said, on film and then let's shoot it on 65 mil. <laughs> and then he said, let's release at least some prints in that in that way and, and celebrated the the baking in of yep. uh, that originating format glories. Um, they, they, Which I, audiences off. have enjoyed. People have sought out those theaters. Yeah, they uh, have, yeah. It really is uh, something to see. Hats off, and because uh, uh, we're, of course, in our musical flourish, it's, it's, uh, it's time once again to say so very well done to Patrick Doyle. It's one of his great Absolutely. scores amongst many. Uh, Maggie Rodford, who produced it, uh, James, who um, conducted it, and, uh, of course, the team that produced all the beautiful musicianship with which it was captured. Those parts of making this picture were a real delight, but none more so, I won't spare your blushes, Michael, than working with your good self, who I thought produced a terrific screenplay which we tried not to mess up and it's been <laughs> an extreme pleasure to work with you across the uh, making of Murder on the, the Orient same. Express. I got to work with uh, someone whose work I admired for so long and it was silly enjoyable. I hope we get to do it again on the Bloody Nile. Ditto. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was Murder on the Orient Express. Thank you for watching. <laughs>